Well, I think it's ironic that in the Lord's sense of humor, October 31st, we've been hearing a lot about it through the month of October, October 31st, the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, the day when the historians begin marking the Protestant Reformation, the day that started a whole process that ended up in a break, a schism in the Western church. It's ironic that that day is right before November 1st, which is All Saints Day. Because All Saints Day is a celebration of the church of every place and age. Or maybe to put it another way, All Saints Day is about the unity of what the Nicene Creed calls the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. An intended process of reforms turns into schism and disunity beginning on October 31st. But when the sun rises the very next morning, our thoughts are supposed to turn to our shared unity with the saints living and now gone. Looking forward to that day when we're going to stand side by side with each other and with him. And this morning is All Saints Sunday. A Sunday when we Protestants, maybe, perhaps most of all, need to be reminded that the gospel doesn't stop with giving us healed relationships with God, but that the gospel will not stop until we also have healed relationships with each other. And so this is the good news of Jesus Christ, written through Paul, the missionary, to a church that desperately needed to be reminded that true unity only comes through one person. And we find it in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I believe it's on page 6 of your bulletin. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do this morning ask once again 
in confidence that we are, in fact, even this very moment, approaching you through one spirit, as you say in this text. We ask that in the context of our being before you in the spirit, you would give us insight into your word. You would give us insight into how you, you have stepped in the person of your son. You've sent your son to step into our disunity, to bring unity. Because we are a disunified people. We have problems of unity with one another. Problems of unity with those that you would have us love. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the gospel once again this morning and to believe it and to see how this word, this good news, heals us and makes us one with your Son and with each other. Do that for us. In Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, along with a number of you in this room, I remember seeing a lot of your faces there. Ellen and I were able to attend the U2 concert that was here in Dallas this last spring. A great band, great show, great performance as usual. Terrible acoustics at Jerry World. That's the short review of the concert. Jerry World's a great place for sporting events, not for rock concerts. Not a big surprise. But we did get to hear one of my favorite songs while we were there. We got to hear this song, With or Without You. One of my favorite songs from the Joshua Tree album. Bono sings in the song, he says, See the stone set in your eyes. See the thorn twist in your side. I wait for you. Slide of hand. And twist of fate on a bed of nails, she makes me wait, and I wait without you. With or without you, with or without you, through the storm we reach the shore, you give it all, but I want more. And I'm waiting for you. With or without you, with or without you, I can't live with or without you. And so the song is about a relationship that you know you can't live without, and yet it's a relationship that's so hard, it's so excruciatingly difficult at times, that you're sometimes not sure how much longer you can go on. Marriage is going to come to mind for many of us. That kind of relationship is that kind of relationship that Bono's talking about. When we're ready to admit it, we're not concerned about appearing so pious as to deny it. So will friendships that are really deep and have a lot of history, which actually are the only kind of friendships really that have a power to deeply hurt us too. Maybe the relationship between a child and a parent in some cases. But another relationship that ought to come to mind for us through Bono's words here is the church. And yes, relationships between individuals in the church, but also between large groups of Christians, maybe, in one part of the church with another large group in the church. With it being the quincentennial, the 500th year celebration of the Protestant Reformation this last week, I'm sure you're a lot like me, 
My, my news feeds have shown that just about every columnist and every theologian and every casual blogger and even a lot of soccer dads and moms on Facebook and Twitter have felt the need to go online and give us their opinion for how the Reformation's been going for the last 500 years. And some were really critical of the movement, saying that it had failed or there were a lot of things they didn't like about it. Some were glad for it, maybe not so much because they were Protestant or even Catholic, but because they believed that it was a very helpful stepping stone to the modern secular age, and that's what they were happy about. Some were just diehard Protestants, and they wanted everybody to know that Team Luther is still alive and strong. One whole article was thankful for all the ways in which Luther's wife, Katerina, helped make beer brewing better for all. That was a really interesting article. But one theologian's views in particular, I think, caught my eye. His name is Peter Lightheart. And Lightheart wanted to remind us that the Reformers never set out to split the church. That wasn't their goal. Their desire was to reform it to actually retrieve the unity of the church once again. Because in their view, the Roman Catholic Church of their day was so swaddled in the trappings of power that the church's universal essence, its its visibility in the world, the communion of saints was barely, barely visible at all. That in the view of the reformers, the Catholic Church had started to look so much like the great kingdoms and powers and empires of the day They didn't look much like a church anymore. Whitehart reminds us that the reformers denied that the word Catholic should belong to Rome. But instead they taught that the church is Catholic, small c, because in all times and places there's only ever been one church. And then Lightheart ended his essay by saying this. He said, Protestantism has a future only if we Protestants recover the original Catholic vision of the Reformers. We need to take up the project of uniting and renewing the whole church. And Lightheart is right. And there's lots of ways we could talk about how that should be done or should not be done. And that's not really where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. But rather just to stop with saying that Lightheart is right. Not because he says so, or because I say so, or because even Martin Luther or John Calvin said so, but because the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning, says so. In the first ten verses of Ephesians 2, the the first ten verses before our passage this morning, Paul's been reminding the Ephesian Christians of the power of God's grace to save them. That they were once spiritually dead. That they were unable to love God, unable to desire God, to know God. That they were enslaved to Satan and the greed and the lust of the world. They didn't choose that. That's how everyone comes into the world, Paul says. We all come into the world in that place, in that state. But then God, purely out of an act of grace and kindness on his part, chosen to intervene. He had chosen to forgive their sin. He had chosen to give them a real, a mystical, a mysterious, a spiritual union with his living, resurrected son. 
And all of this, Paul tells them in the famous verses of 8 through 10, was not because of anything the Ephesians had done. They did nothing to earn it. They did nothing to, to, to turn God's face towards them. They did nothing to make him smile. Instead, God had chosen to smile at them even in their wickedness by sending Jesus and removing their hard hearts from them and turning each of their lives into a new story, a new piece of art. Each person into a new person with a new purpose for living their lives to glorify him. And that all of this was to be known and received by faith. And it's largely these teachings in these first ten verses, these doctrines that the Protestant Reformation was about. We just finished a series on the five solas of the Reformation, and we're not going to go back through them. But you can find, very comfortably, you can find four of the five solas in just the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. The Roman Catholic Church had not lost the gospel, but they had very, very, very much obscured it, and they had covered it up, and they had buried it almost to a point of unrecognition beneath a whole system, a whole system of self-improvement teachings and moral do-it-yourself techniques and a Christianity of cultural comfort and cultural power where everybody's assumed to be Christian as long as they show up and say the right liturgies and show up at church once in a while and show some respect for the Pope and his vision for the church. It sounds a lot like various aspects of even Protestant Christianity today. And while the Reformers were hugely successful in reforming the doctrines of the church and returning them back to the things that the church used to teach and confess so well centuries before, we know the story. We know that the Roman Catholic Church as an institution largely resisted this reform. And additionally, we know the story that new Protestant groups began springing up very quickly. Within just a couple of generations, whole Protestant groups, they're at war. And they're not just at war with the Catholics. They're at war with each other. And when I say war, I don't mean that they're just in argument. I don't just mean that they're having debates. I mean they're killing each other. I mean Europe runs red with blood and burns for the next hundred years. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying in religious wars. Not just between Protestants and Catholics, but even between Protestants and Protestants. And the whole second half of Paul's second chapter to the Ephesians, what we have in front of us this morning, was ignored in practice. And here's the reality. We wouldn't be here this morning if it wasn't for the Catholic Church that carried the truth sometimes more clearly, sometimes more obscured until the 16th century. We wouldn't be here. We can't live without them. But the result of the Reformation meant that both Protestants and Catholics decided that they couldn't live with each other either. And like the split church of the 16th century, we also follow in their footsteps in our relationships, our personal relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships to the local church as individuals and families. 
Because we fail to believe and obey what Paul says to Jew and Gentile in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We fail to follow the only path God has given us for achieving true unity, true oneness. Because as with the church of every age, unity was something the Ephesian church had to fight for. But this also meant resisting all the ways that a fallen world tries to achieve unity. Ways that usually only cause more fracturing and more division. As in our day, the Ephesian church, they were tempted to force unity through power plays. Cornering the other side, cornering the other side into surrendering so that unity could somehow result. As a lot of us know, the Gentiles had had a very long history of exercising political and military power and dominance over the Jews. The the Syrians, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, several Greek kingdoms. And then finally the imperial might of Rome in Paul's day. Each of these superpowers had crushed the Jews under their boots. The Jewish people had watched their older and wiser men and women desecrated. Their young women raped. Their little children dashed against rocks. Their women sold into slavery and shipped off to foreign lands. And their young men forced into labor camps and foreign armies. No one, no one had to remind a Jew of what it meant for Gentiles to force compliance out of them for the sake of national security and unity. And what did this use of power produce? Well, it produced what it always produces. Resentment. Anger. A seething desire for vengeance. That's way, way beyond personal. But a seething desire for vengeance that reaches a level of cultural identity and value. Vengeance becoming part of the very air you breathe. And so what did the Jews do? Well, they fought back, but they fought back the only way they could fight back. With their rich religious heritage. I mean, no one even came close to having the religious heritage, the the history of the Jews. And, And even the great pagan powers of the day recognized it. Rome was so impressed with the Jewish faith that they officially recognized it as a tolerated, organized faith in the empire and promised not to persecute Jewish worshipers out of respect for the great history and antiquity of their faith. Paul recounts some of this cultural heritage in verses 11 through 13. God had sent the prophets to the Jews. He had done great miracles of rescue only through the Jews. He had given the promises of salvation to the Jews And that it would come through the Jews. He had given his Old Testament, the word of God, through the Jews and mostly to the Jews. He had given them the signs and seals of his promises, the sacraments of circumcision and Passover to the Jews. No one knew the one true God except the Jews or because of or through the Jews. And Paul is reminding the Gentile Ephesians that this used to be the case for them as well in our passage this morning. But the Jews love to remind the Gentiles of this fact. 
out of their victimization, out of having been made victims for centuries, Jewish Christians were now using their history of religious superiority against Gentiles. They were making Gentile Christians feel like they were second-class Christians, excluded from the club of, of the really pious, the really righteous. Many Jewish Christians were wrongly still following Old Testament rituals in order to feel superior. Rituals the Gentiles didn't follow, like circumcision. And the Jews used these rituals as badges of honor. Paul calls this the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. In other words, the Jews were now making their power play to But it was a social power play. In their minds, they had been victims, and their victimization now gave them the right, and now gave them the justification to wield their own power to gain the upper hand, and they were doing it in the church. Because it was the same back then as it is in our day. Today's victims become tomorrow's victimizers. As I've heard my friend Jim say on many occasions, hurt people turn around and hurt other people. This year not only marks the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, it also marks the 100 year anniversary of the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. And much of the working philosophy behind the Soviet Revolution of 1917 came from a man named Karl Marx. And among the many, many things that Marx taught, some of them helpful, a whole lot of them not, is that first, power is the currency for unity. For Marx, power. Power is the currency for unity. In his view, the only way unity can ever be achieved is by solving the problem of power. By rightly determining who gets it and who doesn't. Secondly, Marx taught that those who have been victimized by, the, by those who have power, those who have been victimized, they should be assumed to be the virtuous ones, while the victimizers are the evil ones. Very black and white. And so the solution, according to Marx, is for the virtuous ones, the abused ones, to violently take power away from the abusers, and that will eventually set up conditions for unity. Whether political or economic was especially his concern, or ethnic, racial reconciliation. And so, how did this work out in the Russian Revolution? Well, the lower peasant classes who'd been abused and extorted for centuries, they, they rise up in anger against the ruling classes and they slaughter them in their homes. Men, women, children all receive the same fate. Political and social and economic power is forcefully taken away from the czar and the aristocracy and the peasants. They finally got it. And then what? A great age of unity and harmony? Of course not. We know too much Soviet history to know that's how things turned out. Why? Because hurt people 
hurt people. Today's victimized become tomorrow's victimizers. And you know what? So many of us in our relationships, we act like functional Marxists, whether we have any clue who Marx is or not. Because we make our attempts at having unity and harmony with each other all about power. Just like the Gentiles did to the Jews, just like the Jews were doing to the Gentiles, just like the Catholics did to the Protestants and the Protestants to the Catholics, just like the Russian peasants did to the Tsar and the aristocracy, and it keeps going. So what do we have to do? Well, to use Marx's terms, we have to have a revolution against our Marxist inclinations, against our desires for being the executioners of our own justice. We have to have a revolution against participating in a cycle of recycled revenge, as Chris Martin says it in his song. We have to stop believing that power is at the center of unity. It never has been. It never has been, nor was it created to be at the center of unity. The Christian story says power has never intended to be at the center of unity, but rather our shared brokenness, our shared need, our shared humility, our shared dependence, and our shared reception of grace. And so if your attempts, if your attempts at achieving unity in your relationship, in in your suffering marriage, in in your wounded friendship, in your racial inequality, if those involve getting together with the other and pooling your power all together into a big pot and then breaking out the big scales and thinking that you can just divvy out the power so that the scales are going to balance, I don't really have much hope for you. I don't have hope for your hope for unity coming that way. Because I don't think you get it. Because I don't think that's what the gospel is saying this passage. I don't think that's how it's going to be done. You're just trying to achieve unity in the only way a constantly divided world thinks it can be achieved. Because those who think that unity can only be achieved through the currency of power... They already have a distrust for each other. They're already interested in keeping fences and walls up. They're already planning for the next war. They're already thinking defensively instead of thinking like broken people who truly want peace and who hope for no more war who are more aware of their own sins and their own shortcomings than they are concerned about holding tight-fisted to the list of grievances that have been caused by the other side. Power is not the currency for unity. Power is important, but healthy power dynamics can only be the result of unity that's already been achieved another way. A lot of you have been there, just like me and Ellen. What happens? What happens when you take the hurt and the pain caused by the other person in your last fight? Your last argument? It's a fight. In your last fight, 
What happens when you take the hurt and the pain caused by the other person in your last fight you had, and then you try to use that as leverage in your next fight? Does it go well? No, it doesn't go well. Why? Because you didn't marry a stupid person. And they can smell a power play a mile away and they've already begun to resent it before you're done trying to make it. Unity isn't going to be achieved that way. What does Paul say Jesus does with power plays? Beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus removes the object of power from the relationship, the object of hostility, which in this case was the law. The law was being misused by the Jews to make a power play, and Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to fulfill that law. I'm going to obey that law, which neither one of you, Jew or Gentile, could fulfill or obey. I'm going to obey it for both of you. And I'm going to fulfill all that the, 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 the rituals of the law have been pointing to all along in the Old Testament. I'm going to fulfill all those rituals. And therefore, I'm going to make those rituals obsolete because I'm here now. And I'm going to do what the law could never do. I'm going to give you peace in me. And how does Jesus do this? He makes us one in himself. He makes us one in himself. He doesn't make either party the center of oneness or the source of unity. He doesn't make the Gentiles more Jewish because broken and victimized and revenge-seeking Jews, they're not the kind of fabric out of which to make something whole and unified. And, and Jesus doesn't make the Jews more gentilic because demeaned and discriminated against people who are made to feel like second-class persons and who want to assert their own pride and any opportunity they have to get back, well, hey, those kinds of people, they're not going to make the kind of fabric out of which to make something whole and unified either. People who are broken and torn, and by definition, that's all of us, are terrible options for being a basis for unity. Which is why no marital dispute in my home has been solved by me trying to make Ellen more like me. Now, of course, I could make the cute little husband kind of joke, but it always works out when I become more like her. That's a dumb joke. Men should stop making that joke. We're not fooling anybody, certainly not the women. Because I don't want to become like her. 
I don't want to become like her. I'm, I'm too prideful and stubborn and selfish to want to become like her. And even if I did, and I don't, but even if I did, it wouldn't solve anything. I don't have the power to become more like her. And she doesn't have the power to make me more like her. And most importantly of all, Jesus doesn't really want me to become just like her. And he doesn't want her to become just like me. Jesus' plan for me is to become a better me. And for her to become a better her. And for you to become a better you. How? By making all of us more like him. And how does he do that? By making us one in himself. Jesus becomes like each one of us, even taking on our faults and sins by bearing the curse on the cross, so as to take away power from the things that divide us. The fourth century church father named John Chrysostom, he wrote on this passage in Ephesians, and he said this. He said, Jesus made himself the means of combining one with the other. He became a Jew when he was circumcised, And then, being cursed on the cross, he became like a Greek outside the law. And then one more excellent than either Greek or Jew. In his death and resurrection. And here's Chrysostom's point. Jesus takes on our fallen identities. All of the things that we might actually boast in. All of the things that we might think are most important about ourselves, our our law-keeping and morality, our success in our jobs, our fun personalities, our popularity, our intelligence, our athleticism. And then he shows us that those things are actually worthless and giving us a true identity before God, but they're actually also worthless and winning God's smile and winning a basis for having unity with others. Because Jesus does more than that. He also takes on our fallen identities in terms of our worst sins, our abuse of others, our selfishness and pleasure-seeking, our neglect of others, our lusts and our adulteries and our covetousness, our always desire for more. And he takes these on, not by committing these sins, but by bearing the penalty for these sins in himself on the cross. By becoming a curse for his people so that they would never have to hear a curse from God's lips. And then what does he do? He rises again. He rises again to fulfill Solomon's prophecy from Psalm 72, which we heard Jeff read earlier. He rises again from the dead in order to gather all kinds of people to himself. From all over the world. From every tribe. And from both genders. And from different upbringings and backgrounds. And he gives us all equal access to his Father by the same Holy Spirit as verse 18 says. He becomes a cornerstone of a new building. A new temple. And a cornerstone is that stone that you lay in the corner which holds together two separate walls and makes them one by connecting both walls to itself. 
and he builds us on the foundation of the prophets, the Old Testament, largely written by the Jews, for the Jews, and through the preaching and teaching of the apostles, which represent the new covenant, which is becoming more and more Gentile by the day. He builds us on that foundation in himself. And this incredible work of grace, what does it do? It causes us to drop our swords. It causes us to stop the tape. It causes us to stop the recording that we allow to run constantly in our minds, reminding us of what the other has done to us. It burns up the scroll that's growing ever longer, the scroll that we just keep filling out in our hearts with a growing list of wrongs committed by the other. This grace stops us from being the constant lawyer, always building a case against the other. And it makes us not only willing, but it makes us passionately longing for true unity with others. A unity that we now know only can be achieved in Him. This grace makes us broken before Him and it makes us broken before the other and it gives us a oneness in Him, a unity in Him and a unity with each other through Him. And this work of unity is His work. It's not my work, it's not yours, but we can only begin to walk in it, the same way as we walk in all of his blessings, by faith. So start to believe this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.